welcome once again, my friends, to this, the latest episode of the Global Gale podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor. I am coming to you from Stockholm in Sweden. And you, tasteful individual, discerning individual that you are, you are listening to the podcast for the global Irish community of give or take 70 million people around the world. This is where we bring you tales from the international Irish community. Whether you were born on the island of Ireland, whether you are of Irish heritage, you are welcome along to hear inspiring and interesting stories from people in our community. And it's a, a podcast that's growing all the time. It's great to see with uh, listeners from all over the place checking in. And I think this episode this week is going to be of particular interest because it discusses that very subject, right? That of Irish identity. Joining me this week week is Irish author Kate Kerrigan, who is putting on a show now at the end of September in London called Am I Irish Yet, right? We'll get into all of Kate's story and why she came about writing the show, but it's one of these things that has always fascinated me, right? I was in, uh, I think I was telling you before, I was in a Facebook group there recently. Uh, you may recognise the discourse if you're a member of the same group, and there's this big thing of, you know, people coming in, say if they're from Minnesota and they had an Irish parent or a grandparent and they say they're Irish, and then somebody else would be in like a shot, going, you are of Irish descent, you are not Irish. I was like, hang on a second, who made you the judge of who is Irish and who isn't, right? Uh, if you've listened to this podcast uh, for a long time, which, as I say, you know, handsome and beautiful and discerning as you are, you probably have. But you'll be aware at this stage that I have a very broad definition of Irishness. I think it's there for absolutely everybody, whether you're born on the island, whether you've moved there, whatever affinity you feel, I'm not going to stop anybody from calling themselves Irish at all. That's why there's 70 million of us, lads. Before we get on to that, just a reminder that this is a community-supported podcast. It exists only because this community of 70 million people around the world exists. Uh, if you'd like to contribute to the podcast, you'd be more than welcome. I've heard it makes people even more handsome and beautiful. You can do so at patreon.com forward slash man in Stockholm. And just to tell you exactly what I'd like to do with this podcast over the years, uh, I'm hoping now to go to London in the near future to talk to part of the parts of the creative community there, uh, to talk to people who are running pubs over there for, for Irish people and for the Irish diaspora there. All these things cost money. So that's what I'm looking to do is to create a sort of a solid financial basis to allow me to do those things. So there's one way of doing that. One is that if everybody becomes a monthly contributor for a five or a month, the price of a cup of coffee or a pint in most places now, I heard Australia is very expensive, lads, so it may not even be that much there. So if you can do that, that'd be great. And the other way is, if you are having an event or a festival or a trade show or anything else like that, and you'd like me to come along and interview Irish people or talk about Irish people or Irish culture, that you, you can happily pay me a vast amount of money to do so. And I'll go there. I don't even need to fly business class. I'll do it if you force me, of course. But uh, yeah, no, so I'd be happy with to, to discuss with anybody uh, if you have any ideas whatsoever so we can sort of monetize the podcast. The podcast will always be free, right? Because I remember being in Greece in 1991 when I first moved and I had no money and that's why I don't put these things behind a paywall same thing when I moved to Stockholm in 1999 didn't have a whole lot of money while I was trying to get myself set up there so all of these things will never be put behind a paywall so that's why you know by sort of companies getting involved and asking me to do work or by people getting involved and asking me to do journalism or from each person contributing a fiver every month what you're essentially doing is you're paying to keep the podcast free for others and so that to me is the greatest definition of a podcast community that you will have anyway let us get on to Kate Kerrigan now Kate 
Kate Kerrigan is a pen name, right? It was given to Kate. Her actual name is Morag Prunty, but we use the name Kate Kerrigan pretty much throughout the interview because that's how people know her. But I think at some point in the conversation, she may refer to herself as Morag. So just if she does that, you'll know who she's talking about. But I found it absolutely fascinating to have a chat with her and her background growing up in England as an Irish person and the dichotomy then between going home uh, to, to where her parents were from and her grandparents were from during the summer and sort of being referred to as English and being in England and being referred to as Irish and not really feeling accepted in an Irish place. So here it is on the Global Gale podcast, Am I Irish Yet? with Kate Kerrigan. Enjoy. Kate Kerrigan, this is, it's one of those stories that I actually don't know where the best sort of way into it is. But so could we start with a little bit about yourself and your background and your sort of Irish heritage? Because your mum is from Ballina in County Mayo. Yeah, she- yeah my mum's from Ballina. My dad's family are from Longford. And uh, we just spent, we were, we were just like the Irish family growing up in London. We spent all of our summer holidays over in Ireland. And, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of the time that I was growing up um, it was, and so the, the, the Northern Irish conflict was full blown and it was very much over in the UK. We were kind of the bombing Irish, you know? Mm. And when we came home, we with English cousins. And I think that my generation, the generation that grew up at that time specifically in the UK, um, we're, we're kind of like the last generation that have been affected really in that kind in a significant identity way with Irish with the relationship between the English and the Irish you know like one of the things I say in my show is the best thing about the Irish is we hate the English and if you're English and Irish at the same time it's a bit of a problem slightly problematic that all right Um, Yeah, yeah Uh, how, how did you experience that? Like, if you were going to, to school in the 80s and the 90s, because some periods would be worse than others. I'm thinking about the time yeah. after the hung, the hunger strikes and Enna Skillen and that, when it would yeah. be very pronounced. Would you get, you know, kids in your class turning on you because of your surname, your heritage? Was there anybody else in your class in the same boat as yourself? Yeah, yeah. It would have been like we were the Irish, you know, we were the Irish gang. Yeah. You know, so we were kind of like uh, we we were a gang. We were the Irish girls. You know, one of the one of the uh, you know we we kind of we stuck together. We went to mass. Do you know? Uh, we kind of waved our flags on St Patrick's Day. Um, people kind of kept quiet about politics, or they didn't, and 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 I didn't. I was very kind of. I think you kind of you have the opportunity to choose. Do you know? I think that's one of the things about um, growing up with an English accent in that way. You kind of you kind of can choose how Irish you want to be, and I just wanted to be quite strangely Salt Lake seeing. I just wanted to be full blown one hundred percent Irish. Mm. <laughs> no, it's 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 an interesting thing because I've had that conversation with my children, and they used to say to me because we live in an area where it's maybe fifty percent Swedish people and fifty percent people from but any yeah. part of the world you can mention, right? Including yeah. Ireland and wild, because like, you know, sort of exotic places like Carlo and this kind of thing, you know? But yeah. when they've often said to me, you know, oh, you know, we're half Irish and we're half Swedish. And my thing is always, no, you're both Irish and Swedish. It's not half and nothing. It's not like I can split you down the middle and one half has yeah. a, a yellow and blue flag and the other is a tricolor, you know? Yeah. 
Um, how in in the community in London at that time, right? Because obviously, uh, I'm thinking you and me are probably around about the same age. I'm 52, and you, we would have had you too. We would have had the Pogues. We would have had yeah, you know, yeah. expressions of Irish culture through uh, oh, Neil Jordan's films and this kind of thing. How yeah. much of that would have been in your home? You know, with your mom being from from Ballinan, your dad being from Longford, were you sort of enveloped in that culture at home as well? Yeah. We we wouldn't. I mean, my parents were kind of, they were quite old. But yeah, so we would have had, but I'm probably a bit older than you. We would have had like the Jobless Records. We would have had, uh, we would have discussed Irish politics. Um, we would have, uh, where they, they were not taught in English schools at all, Irish mm. history. Um, we would have had the Jobless, Brendan Bean, um, recordings of Brendan Bean records. We, we were very influenced by Irish culture. In our in our home from our parents, and also we spent a lot of time over here. We spent all of our summer holidays over here, yeah. and I think because you know, I think that generations now, children that are that that you know, young people now are interested in identity, particularly around the whole area of gender and LGBTQ. And I think they are interested in their identity, but it's softened. Mm. Um, globalization has softened it. Whereas back in those days, it really was um, the English and the Irish just sort of hated each other. Mm. <laughs> it was just like, we just hated it. You know, that's, that's Irish, all enough. I'm quite hated <laughs> the, the English because of all the terrible things they've done, you know, during history. Yeah. Um, you know, the Irish were kind of like, you know, bombing people and Tories and posh horses and disrupting the tube. And, you know, people just them so you were kind of a lot more able to express those feelings so it was a lot more polarized hmm. in those that way you mentioned those summers that you came back to, to county mayo and to county longford and the time that you yeah. spent with your irish cousins and that right and your show yeah. is called am i irish yet so i'm yeah. guessing that yeah. your accent that you brought back with you from london that you know you may not <laughs> have been com completely accepted by the cousins straight away were you but that, but that, but that's really what the show is about. It's the kind of the search for identity, the wanting to be Irish, um, and no, having this English accent is, uh, yeah, no, it does not work. And also, just all the, the, you know, the nuances of living in Ireland and being in Ireland. You know, like for instance, like Dublin, hmm. like Dublin isn't really Ireland. Like Dublin isn't really anything to do with any kind of an island that I know coming from the West, you know, you've got it's posh people and you've got slobberies and you've got like, you know, it just, I, I, I just, I couldn't get Dublin at all. And of course that's where I moved back to, Yeah, you know, so I was like, actually the office Christmas party and singing all the cars and tension comes. I dropped great. <laughs> all, all the rugby dads in their polo shirts going, hang on, yeah, hang on. Like, <laughs> yeah. And it was all like, you know, bragging about my dirty culture, granddad being in the IRA, you know, so I had that to tackle. Yeah. And really when I moved here, I had no idea what it meant, you know, to mm. be Irish. You know, you, you come here and you think you are, but, you know, I, I was. I think it's, uh, it, there's, well. there's, there's so many different ways of expressing it and there's so many different ways that it manifests itself. And obviously in yeah. the situation that you were in as part of the London Irish, if we call them that, that's one way of doing it. Then you move to Dublin. I'm from Dublin. I understand exactly what you're saying. It yeah, is yeah, but you're on the north side. You're not from, where are you from? I'm from Duddy Kearney on the north side. That's correct. I, I yeah, tell yeah. You, she, she had you're the accent from... straight away, you know, so. Yeah, not you're so... not from, 
Yeah, you're not from, um, you know, John Leary or Bray or do you know what I mean? You're Dublin kind of, 4. This yeah, kind of thing. yeah. You're not yeah. from Dublin 4, yeah. Yeah. How old were you when you moved back sort of as an adult? How old were you when you said, look, it, I, I want to make my life in Ireland now? And as it, as you mentioned, you went to Dublin, but then you wound up in Ballina. Was that was that a conscious decision early on as an adult that you wanted to move back to Ireland? Yeah, it was like I left. I left. I had a very successful job in London. I was like the editor of Just Seventeen and I was kind of I was kind of high flying, but I think I kind of burnt out quite quickly and I got offered a job in Ireland and I knew enough to know that you know, there weren't many jobs editing women's magazines in Ireland. And if I didn't move then, you know, it would never happen for me. Mm. So I moved over. I was probably, I think, I had my 25th birthday in, um, in Dublin. That's pretty young for somebody who's given an editing job for a women's magazine in, in any part yeah. of the world. Yeah, well, I was an editor. I was the youngest editor. Of, I was editor of uh, a magazine in the UK when I was 21. So I was a little, I was kind of a little media prodigy. Um, and by the time I was 25, I was just kind of a bit knackered. So yeah, I've, I've, I had quite, <laughs> quite a strange and exciting life. Um, but um, yeah, so I, I moved to Ireland when I was 25 and then um, gradually managed to find myself a husband and then manipulated him into moving to um, the west coast of Ireland. But also, like, I went from, uh, when I got my first book deal, um, after I got married, um, I gave up my job in magazines, and my husband supported me, and I got a book deal quite quickly, so then I could live wherever the hell I wanted, you know? The way they use the word manipulation there, to say you manipulated yeah. to the rest, I'm, I'm guessing he's from Dublin too, is he, by any chance? yeah. Have you ever heard the expression "happy wife, happy life"? I, I hear yeah. it every day. I, it, I, it's yeah. a mantra. If I was yeah. ever to get a tattoo, yeah. that would be it, you know. Because it. But I think it's also. I think it's also. I you know I think Ireland has changed. Dublin has changed. Mm. Uh, uh, rural Ireland just changed a lot, a lot less than Dublin. Yeah. And the time we moved, you know, we got married and then we had our first child, and really. If you're going to do that in Dublin, it's really suburban and boring. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, and and down the West also, you know, when I was going to go for a pint after work, you're in Dublin, those days are gone. Yeah. <laughs> so, it. It's 20 yeah. quid. You can't even afford to look at the glass, like, you know. Yeah, and now as well, you know, like he wouldn't, he wouldn't, he'd be, he'd be much more reluctant to go back to Dublin than I would. Mm. You know, he he loves he loves it here. Loves it. Yeah, I, I often great... get that. I I often get that question. It's like, oh, would you move back to Dublin? I would if I had a time machine and I could move back to the early nineties when everything was still cheap and you good crack. And yeah. That kind of thing. But when you see, like, you know, uh, there's various Facebook groups for the Irish abroad and they post the receipts from the Temple Bar pub in Dublin and you go right, okay, nine quid a pint. No, I'm pretty good where I am now. You know. Yeah. B before but it's we very leave... busy. Yeah, go on. No, no, go ahead. There, you were going to say something. I can't remember. Not to worry. Listen, one of the things that, uh, one of the reasons that brought you to Ireland and that you were offered that job as a 25-year-old uh, to go edit in a women's magazine is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you were one of the people who sort of discovered Take That. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I did, Jan. I so I was, the editor, I was the editor of Just 17 and we had a road show um, where we used to, Philip Schofield and his manager, 
What's his name? Can't remember his manager's name. And we used to travel or we traveled all around the UK, various different venues with young pop groups and took one pound coins of 14 or 15 year old girls and had this kind of road show. This is back in the early nineties before the internet or anything like that, you know? And one of the bands, yeah, in London was Take That. We so they did their first, you would call it a big live gig um, for us at Just Seventeen. And at that time, I mean, at that time, I would have been the boss of every teenage girl in the country. Things were a lot more, again, like polarized in those days. Yeah, there was one, like two teenage girls magazines. Yeah. And the one that sold the most copies was the one you wanted to be in. And that was just 17 and I was the editor of it. So I did their first interview with them and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Did, did you recognize, did you recognize, because this is a band that went into the stratosphere, like the Beatles, no. like the Monkees, no. like the Backstreet no, Boys. No, did, no, it wasn't like, I know. You know, when you're, no. And uh, they only go in bands like that. You know, they're, I mean, I wasn't, I was not like, compare take that to Beatles. I've just sworn actually. in church now, I feel. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, what what was happening at that time was that we needed boy bands. Mm. And boy bands needed us. You know, and it was it was a market. It was and it always has been, you know, like you're you're feeding a frenzy of teenage girls. And it was a different time. You know, now everything's become a lot more, um, a lot more, you know, it's easier, it's harder, but it's easier for bands to make it. Mm. Everything, you know, you can produce your own records, that kind of thing. But in, in, in those days, it was just very much, you know, it was like a big marketing thing. You know, they were good, they were talented, they could write songs, they could perform. Um, it wasn't like I looked at them and I went, oh, they're going to be, biggest thing ever mm. but you do know and you want them to be the biggest thing ever because if you if they're the biggest thing ever you're selling more more copies of your magazine when you put them on the front cover yeah because it was they so were I'll, they were hugely yeah. famous like them i can think of e17 i can't even really remember the rest of the boy bands at that time but they were just massive and then you know kids crying huge. when they broke up and this kind of thing as well you know yeah yeah Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Was that an exciting time for you to be in the middle of all this? Because I know you said you eventually burned it burned you out, but it sounds like it was great. No, crack. it wasn't. It it kind of it, it wasn't, it wasn't. Like I look back on it now and I think, oh my God, did I really do all those things? Sometimes I talk to my son because you know I present Calaric down Chileo and there's not much happening down here. And um I when I was younger I did when I was on the women's magazines, I did meet all sorts of people and do all sorts of interesting things. And sometimes my son, he's in fashion college and he just looks at me and I just say, you think I'm making this stuff up, don't you? And he kind of signed up, you know, because it's so beyond. But it's just a, a different experience, a different time. Yeah. You know, and things were different then. From there, you went, you know, you eventually left the magazine world, as you said. Your husband was supporting you for a little mm. while and you got a book deal. And I love the way you said that because it just sounded like the, the easiest, most natural thing in the world. No, what, what, what made you decide to go from editing magazines to writing novels? And how did that process work? Because I'd assume you would have had a profile, you would have had contacts, you knew how the no, media no. and the marketing worked and that kind of thing. No. Was that, was no, that a very help? Di- you know? 
No, no, it was a very different thing. And if anything, it was kind of humiliating uh, because every journalist wants to write a book or wants to write fiction. So actually other journalists sort of laugh at you and book publishers are not always in that much of a hurry. So no, it was, uh, I literally, I just, I, I just had been writing fiction. I had a passion for it. I'd always written short stories and written fiction and I, I finished a book. And that had taken me years and years and years. It was kind of a literary thriller. And by this time, I'd acquired an agent. Um, actually, that was through my contacts in publish in 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 magazines. I I met a woman who was starting out as an agent, and she took me on. And uh, I've written this thriller, a literary thriller, which turned out to be neither literary or thrilling. Stop <laughs> <laughs> <Popping> the way. <laughs> yeah. And I was friends at that time with Marion Keyes. She was a writer, um, very, very successful now, but this was in her early days in Dublin. And we started a little book group together, a little writer's group. There were a few of us sitting writing. And one night I finished this book and she said, did you enjoy writing that book, Warwick? And I thought about it and I said, no, it was horrible. It was a horrible experience. It was really hard. Yeah, it was really hard and it took me ages. And she said, you know, if you wrote commercial fiction, you'd be really good at it because you've all this experience in the women's magazines. And actually, Marion had covered me at work. She based one of the characters in one of her books, one of her women's fiction books, on me. I said, not very snobby. I said, oh, no, no, I'm not really. And she said, just because you don't place value on something that you can do, she said, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have value. Mm-hmm. And the next day I woke up and I started writing a kind of really fast-paced, comedy, shit-bissy type book, very way out. And I rang my husband, I said, I, I ran into my husband, I said, I think I'm on to something. And I said, 20 pages off to my agent and she got me a huge book deal on the strength of that. But I'd been writing for years, but I just, I tripped on something. I got lucky, you know? It's not always, um, it's not always easy to consume that portion of humble pie though, is it? Because, you know, you have these great aspirations of writing literary fiction and then you find out, hang on a second, this is what I'm really good yeah. at. Was that yeah. hard for you then to be sitting there sort of, you know, half going, shit, this is really good. <laughs> kind of, but you know, I think I've always been, yeah, there is that. Um, I actually teach creative writing now. That's one of the things that I talk to my students about is the writer's ego. Mm. Um, And that really must never let it stand in the way of a good story or stand in the way of, you know, telling a good story. Um, Yeah, there was a certain amount of public private then not, you know. I had loads of money uh, over the years. You know, I've written books. I, You know, I know what my limitations are as a writer. I think that what I'm doing now with this play, even though it's, you know, it's a short piece, it's one hour. I've written, I don't know, 15 novels. Some of them are quite good, some of them aren't. And this is probably the best thing that I've ever written because it's the most honest and it's the most, it's, you know, it's the most honest and it's the most authentic and it's the most paired back. You know, 
So when you're a writer, you just go through and you just, you have to just remain open to whatever comes up. And if that's popular fiction, literary fiction, poetry plays, whatever it is, you just roll it back, you know? Well, what you've written here in Am I Irish Yet is something that's completely different for you from, you know, writing for for women's magazines yeah. and just 17 and then writing novels in the way that you've done and writing literary fiction. This is a one woman show, right? Do you yeah. have or, or had you had theatre experience before? Had you written this kind of thing for the stage before or ever? Or was this something that just popped into your head and you went, oh, this would be a great one woman show? No, it was completely new. So what happened was the title Am I Irish Yet has been in my head for probably the last 10 years as various, I, I, I did a lecture for um, a literary festival about 10 years ago called Am I Irish Yet, which was opening up uh, a literary festival. And then I was looking at doing it as um, a doctorate and a piece of research and various different machinations and none of them had ever really, and a memoir, and none of them had ever really come to anything because writing about yourself was actually quite hard. And this came about because I had friends of mine work in theatre and I suppose I have been doing some, friend of mine owns a circus company. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. I'm not sure I like where this is going, but go on. <laughs> and I do like costumes for her. It's just like my little kind of side passion. I do like costumes for her. So I think my contact with her and her husband, who are both quite seasoned the English theatre professionals, uh, and they were just like, you can do this. So I wrote the piece probably about a year ago. I didn't really, I, I didn't really know if I was going to perform it. Initially, I was just going to stand up and read it in a theatre. And then another friend of mine got involved who's a director and he made me perform it. And now it's now it's proper piece of performance theatre that I'm taking out around the place. It's amazing, really. How does that feel for you after all the things you've done to be doing something which is completely new in front of an audience, which in itself is probably completely new as well? Yeah, was, that, was, that, yeah. was that a big step? Was there a lot of nerves when you're saying, OK, I'm going to stand up on stage. I'm going to do this myself. Was that a big step for you to take? Um, strangely enough, no. I think what it was, it was more kind of like, oh, my God, I can actually do this. Why, why, why didn't I do this years ago? <laughs> <laughs> You know what? I had a baby and I kind of went, oh my God, this is amazing. Why did I wait so long to do this? You know, <laughs> it, was, it was really, I, I know that sounds, I mean, of course it's nerve wracking and frightening, but I've done more nerve wracking, frightening things, yeah. you know? Um, and it's, and it's nerve wracking every time I have to do a performance. Um, and it's, and it's tiring as well. You know, like I'm pushing 60. So it's, it's exhausting, mm. but it's just, um, it's something that I feel really strongly about and I feel really passionate about. And, um, and I'm really, really enjoying it. I'm really enjoying going out, meeting people and chat to them afterwards, hearing their experiences. Um, I get amazing feedback from people coming up saying, you're telling my story. You know, the last gig I the last gig I did, a woman came up and she was just like this like little old knock granny, you know, it's like the real typical what you would imagine like an Irish granny to look like with a little perm. 
car together and she came up and she had she had a lot of accent and she said i've been living in ireland for 17 years still had the accent still had the accent and she said you have just she said you are the first person all that time that has actually said back to me what it's like who's actually understood what that's like is, you know? is, there, is there a lot of people who are in that situation, Kate? Is there a lot of people like that that grandmother and, and like yourself? Because I uh, think there are, you know. I think there's I think it's what well, a lot of people change their acts, so they alter their acts and they're able to do that. Mm. But there is, and there is this kind of remember there's this very, very close relationship between England and Ireland. Um where we're we're neighbors, we're right next door to each other, and yet there has been you know this animosity, and I'm not, and I still, I mean, I still, you know, I speak like this, and the English accent kind of grates on me. You know, <laughs> like I sometimes I can't bear listening to myself speak. Um, you know, sometimes if I hear myself recorded back, I'm like, who's that little tan bitch? Oh my god, it's me. <laughs> you know, it's still, um, it's like a, it's like a kind of a. It's kind of like an inbuilt, it's just like a very kind of inbuilt, ancient, you know, unconscious bias that is that is just there, that just exists. Yeah. And no one really talks about it. No one really talks about um no one talks about it. And no one pretends it's not there, but but no one talks about it. Mm. So it's really great to be able to talk about it and not give a shit and then get great feedback. Uh, yeah. the, Irish, the Irish writer Paul Howard, who writes the Russell Carroll Kelly books, yeah, yeah, it is great, yeah, millions of other things. But he talks about being yeah. a young lad and moving back from England to Ireland, and thinking, "I have to get rid of this accent, or it's going to get me killed." Actually, I didn't know that. I did not know that. Yeah. I didn't know that 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 he was in England. That he yes. originally came. England. Yeah, so he was really, I think he was born in Ireland, then moved over to England. He'll probably give out to me now if I get this wrong. And then when he moved back in sort of 12, 13, you know, those sort of formative years when you should yeah, be reading yeah. just 17 and watching take that. And then all of a sudden he went, okay. But so he made sort of the conscious choice, if I can frame it that way, to get rid of the accent. But you never I did that. No. You never talked. I, I tried. I tried, but I was kind of unable. I, yeah. I'm just unable. That's, I mean, that's kind of what the show is about as well. I don't why it's a comedy because I just, I'm just not able to. Mm. I've tried. Hasn't worked out uh, so far. Um, apart from that one grandmother in, in uh, from from Knock in County Mayo, uh, who else has seen this show? How many shows have you done so far? And has there been any sort of reaction? Because sometimes when you hold a mirror up to Irish people who are born and reared in mm. Ireland, they're not a big fan of it when we tell them, look, at you probably weren't as welcoming as you could have been there. It's been really interesting because um, I've only done I've I've done a couple of shows in the UK. That's amazing, um, and I've another I've another run in London. But going around Ireland, the feedback has been amazing from people because Irish people are nice and they don't want to think of themselves as being me. Yeah, and they're not me. It's just that thing that, and when you when you go back to them, you say, "Actually, that was a bit shitty," or "Actually, I did feel like a bit of a prick," or "Actually, I don't like being called a plastic paddy." Mm. You know what I mean? Um, then kind of like, like I one of the things that surprised me was say 
one of the first shows that I did was for a group of um, people who I, I work in the circus with the theatre in. And one of them is this fabulous woman from the North, Ursula. And I was, she just said, what's the show about? And I was telling her that I was saying, you know, this one part of it where I'm in the Har- where I get caught up in the Harrods bomb. And she's from like the fourth row. And she immediately said, oh, she said, your bombs are so posh. And it was like a real, it was fantastic. <laughs> it was a fantastic thing to say. It was also like an instant put down. And after she saw the show, she came up and she said, oh my God, now I get it. Mm. I shouldn't have said that. Do you know what I mean? It's a, it's a kind of a, so it is, it's making it, but my experience of it is that no one has, um, I mean, I've done it in front of home crowds in Ireland that have got standing ovations and it's been like all Irish people, hmm. do you know? Because when you give some, when you give people something that they've not heard before or that they've not thought of before, mostly because you know what, I'll say it. Yeah. You know, because people like me don't want to stand up and say we've got an English accent, and you know, we we just we we just don't want to do it because it's embarrassing. Yeah. You know, we're kind of like we just kind of we don't want to say it. Mm. And then that, now that somebody is saying it, people are being really people are being really great about it. Um, how what has the reception been from people in England? And by that I mean Irish people or people of Irish heritage in England and English people who go to, to the theatre for the couple of gigs. Because I know there's a huge amount of gigs coming up in London shortly, and we'll talk about that in a second. But has the yeah. uh, the reaction in England been different in any way to the reaction that you got in Ireland? It's I'd say it's home. I'd say London Irish is its home crowd. Yeah. That's it. Like when I'm in London, I say that I'm actually doing a one-off show in Belt Mullet this week because Belt Mullet in August is full of returned Irish people. It's just everywhere you go in Belt Mullet, it's people with English accents. Yeah. So I wanted to go up and do a show up there just for just a kind of a wall-up for London. Um, but people who grew up as Irish and still have that affinity for Ireland over in England. That really is my home crowd. That's really my tribe. So I do feel that when I'm over there. I do feel that kind of warmth that I'm making that kind of impact. Like people will cry. Do you know what I mean? Like they would cry when I when I perform parts of the show in, in London where I stick really for for better or worse they're not going to do that i've noticed Uh, that um, it's it's also an idea that you know if you and me can talk about this with me in sweden and you in in balana and if it's playing in ireland and it's it's playing in london do you have the ambition to bring this to to san francisco and to new york and to sydney and to auckland and those places because i feel it's a story that you know it's going to go home there have you had any discussions about that yet kate no, I'm gonna. We we just. I have a. I have a really good production company. So we're just gonna get. I'm just getting. Just taking it one step at a time. I'm kind of ready to retire. I'm kind of leading into my retirement age, so I'm not really thinking about too much. Well, <laughs> creating a touring behemoth yeah. instead, you know, when you should be retired. Yeah. 
is is it a very big risk, Kate? I'm talking about you know things like financially and that kind of thing. Because if you're going to take a show on the road, obviously theaters cost money, tickets cost money, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, the production company and directors will want to get paid and that. So is there a huge personal yeah. risk for you financially there, or no, is that sort of covered no. by the professional people? No, 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 no. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't take that risk. Yeah. No. I don't love it that much. <laughs> it's amazing how cynical no, you become with no, the writing you make, business. It, you make it work out. I mean, no one, you know, you're not going to become a millionaire putting anything on the stage anywhere, you know. Um, but at this stage, you know, a good production company, we make sure that our costs are covered. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. it's it, there's no huge risk. It's not river dance. It's just me. <laughs> it's just me in a bag. I'm going to stick that in the poster when you come to Stockholm for this show. Am I Irish? Yeah, yeah. It's not River Dance is going to be written across the bottom, just in case anybody gets the wrong um, Do you have any other ideas? Having dipped your idea, uh, your toe into the, the world of stage now and writing for the stage after so yeah. many years of writing for novels and, and journalism and that kind of thing, is this something that you go, hang on a second, I could be baiting yeah. out plays here like Brendan Bean now? Yeah. I don't want to beat out plays. I don't want to beat out anything anymore. I feel like I'm 60 next year. I've written an awful lot. Do you know? It was one of the things that happened to me during lockdown. I just thought I'm not. I'm not gonna. I you know. I'm. I, I'm not kind of. I. I write what I love writing when I love writing. But I just don't want to suck all the joy out of it. Mm. If you know what I mean. So oh, I have enough. a couple of ideas. Yeah, I have a couple of ideas that I'm kind of mooching around with and talking to a few other people about that I hope something will happen with them over the next couple of years. Um, but, you know, what I really, I just want to concentrate on this and bring it to as many people as want to see it, you know, without wearing myself out entirely. Um, yeah, so that, that that's all I'll be doing for the next while, but I certainly won't be bashing players out anymore. <laughs> yeah, my days of bashing things out are over. Um, yeah, yeah. You mentioned that you're heading to London. Where and when can people see the show, Kate? Okay, so if you um, if you want to learn about the show, you can go onto my website www.katecarrick.ie or myirishyet.com. Um, and the show in September is going to be at the White Bear Theatre in Pennington. You can look up their website or Google it. Um, and it's nearly sold out. It's on at the end of September from the uh, 26th to the 30th. And um, yeah, tickets are selling very, very fast, which is good. Yeah. No, no doubt, but if you haven't listened to this today, come out. Blame yourself if it's sold out, ladies and gentlemen, because this is going to be an absolutely <laughs> brilliant show. Um, you and me are going to have to have a conversation because we're going to have to bring this show to Stockholm as well at some point. But oh, in the meantime, oh, we'll definitely get that right. So you may be around yeah. the Eurovision something next year, you know. But <laughs> for now, okay, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me, and I look forward to coming. Maybe we might have a chat backstage at a show in London at some point in the near future. Oh, nice, yeah, yeah, I'd love that. Tremendous. Thanks again, Kate. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks a million. Thanks a million. There you go. The absolutely fascinating Kate Kerrigan, also known as Moray Prunty. And that show is getting out and about now. It's called Am I Irish Yet? And it will be coming to London at the end of September. And I was saying to Kate off air that I think I'm actually going to be in London the week after it's on, which is breaking my heart completely. And I can't fashion excuse to be there uh, when she is performing. But it's certainly a show that I would love to see. And I've no doubt that it is going to come to places uh, near the rest of us sometime soon, maybe here in Stockholm. But uh, 
uh, it is definitely a show that might have a, a, an appeal for an Irish American audience or for an audience in Scotland or in Australia or wherever else where this aspect of our culture and uh, our acceptance of, of one another in it is discussed and but when I started this podcast lads and ladies I started it with the premise that there is no such thing as an Irish person abroad and just that whole idea of of Kate being an editor of Just 17 the, the most influential uh, women's and girls mag magazine at the time is just amazing and the idea that she would have given us take that now I know there's a few of you listening who have no idea who Gary Barlow and Robbie Williams and take that actually are they were huge at the time and there's this Irish, uh, this member of our community, one of the London Irish, behind that whole sort of success story. She was a part of that whole success story. Knew these lads, putting them on the front cover, building them up and this kind of crack as a part of sort of music history, you know. So uh, it's amazing. There certainly is no such thing as an ordinary Irish person abroad. Remember, patreon.com forward slash arrowman in Stockholm if you can throw in a five a month. Please do, right? It's not much every year. So you couldn't even get a Ryanair flight from most places back to Ireland for that. And if you did, by the time you threw a suitcase on board, it'd cost the earth anyway. So if you can contribute to that, I would be very, very happy indeed. Next week, I've actually done the interview already next week, and it's with an Irish man living in Helsinki, Finland. And it's a fascinating conversation around food and innovation and the dairy industry. And this is the kind of thing you'll get, lads, on the Global Gale. If it's in any way interesting whatsoever, we will find them. We will hunt them down and we will sit them in front of the Global Gale microphone and get them to tell us our story. If you have a story to tell, and again, in particular, I'm looking for people, for Irish people or people from the Irish diaspora in South America and in Africa, but also in Asia and North America and in the UK as well. As I mentioned, hopefully in the first week of October, I'm going to be over in London talking to some of the London Irish there and some of the young creative people that are there with Joe O'Neill. Uh, he's putting on events there to beat the band, so we're going to try to join them for some Tuesday evening. And we'll probably interview a bunch of other people as well whilst we're over there. But in the meantime, if you do have a story, uh, hit me up on Instagram at Philip Ablana, on Twitter at Philip O'Connor, that's with two N's and an O-R on the end, or you'll find me Philip O'Connor journalist on Facebook, or just Google me and this loud-mouthed Egypt with a beard and a pair of glasses will show up somewhere, and you'll find contact details there, there's telephone numbers and there's email addresses and there's all sorts of that crack, right? I shall leave you alone. Remember that on this Arrowman in Stockholm podcast feed, you can also hear the Irish in Sweden podcast, you can hear the Arrowman in Stockholm podcast, there's an episode of that coming up next week as well, and the Premier your Swedes podcast where I'm desperately and very slowly trying to talk to all the Swedes who have played in the Premier League uh, so far we've had Anders Limpar and we've had Pontus Kormark uh, who played for Leicester City and who was the other well we had somebody else on there as well and we also have Niklas Alexandersson who played for Everton coming up there as well so uh, well worth uh, dipping your ears into that if you've nothing better to do with yourself I shall let you go my friends until next time take care of yourselves take care of one another and I'll talk to you again very soon in fact in a week's time on the Global Gale Podcast. Good luck.